So good evening to everyone. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. So my name is Sara Cosentino. I'm from Vaseda University. And today I will try to explain a little what we are doing in our research uh, group. We all know that the world is aging very fast, especially Japan. And by 2050, most of the world will have a population of over 30% of over 65 years old. So what is the problem with that? The problem is that aging population will have a decrease in mental and physical abilities, and uh, this implies a decrease in overall, overall quality of life for the whole society, for both the aged people and the caregivers, the family that have to take care of the problems. Decrease in overall productivity, increased strain on healthcare system, and so it's a burden for the society as a whole. And how can we uh, try to minimize the problem that come from the aging population? Uh, first of all, we have to analyze what is the actual condition. Uh, there are various stages of aging condition. People can be still healthy and active. Uh, some people could be still mentally healthy, cognitive, uh, with full cognitive abilities, but frail. So they are still self-sufficient, but need some monitoring and not self-sufficient, and so need a little bit more uh, support. And then people can start develop cognitive uh, deficit. And for all this type of aging condition, we need to develop appropriate countermeasures. So for healthy and active people, we should try to prevent uh, decreasing of cognitive and uh, physical abilities. For frail but mentally healthy people, it just might need monitoring so that the condition doesn't not get worse. And when it doesn't get worse, we can act. For not self-sufficient, we need continuous care. For light mental conditions, still we need some support, but we can try to leave the person uh, independent as much as possible. And for severe degeneration of cognitive abilities, we still need continuous care. But what do we actually need to do? So for prevention of decrease of mental and physical abilities, we need the people, the aging population, to continue train themselves, both cognitive training and physical training. And we need them to actually know how much they're training, to, to do the required amount of training necessary not to decrease the ability. Then we need monitoring. What do we do for monitoring? We have logistical problems for monitoring the people all of the time. We have privacy concern, of course, on monitoring people all of the time. And of course, there is subjective estimation, which is not the same for everyone. The actual user might think that they need less monitoring than expected, and the family might, might think that they need much more monitoring than actually necessary. And for support and care, there are problems with such as emotional distress, both of the uh, elderly person that requires care, but also for the caregivers. And again, there is a problem of subjective need estimation, so how much uh, support and care it's needed. And all of those problems are not only technical, but they involve emotional, economical aspects, and uh, technology or solutions actually solutions for uh, these problems must take care of all of those aspects. So for example, there are many different uh, technology at the moment already uh, in commerce, already available for prevention, for monitoring, for physical, physiological support, for psychological support, cognitive support. The problem is that those solutions are not widely adopted yet, and why? There are several problems. Most of 
the time we talk about user-centered issues. So for example, why do elderly people do not adopt technological solutions? Because they don't really understand how to use technology. They need some assistance to learn. They, they don't trust technology, of course. They have privacy concerns or they cannot really get familiar with this object because I never used it in my life and the design is strange. Or maybe they have actual physical problems, so uh, such sight loss, hearing loss, so that they cannot really use the device properly and then they give up. But there is not only this. There is also another problem. And if we look at the diffusion of innovation theory in the research, we can see that there is usually uh, any uh, let's say innovation goes through three phases that there is a development part an assessment which is mostly research the user uh, needs and how it works and then there is a early phase of acceptance and adoption the early birds start to use the innovators start to adopt this technology use the technology give a lot of feedback and the technology gets better and better, and then mostly if the technology is actually valuable, it will be adopted by everyone. This was the case, for example, for mobile phone. Uh, the early adopters got a mobile phone and start to use it all the time. Uh, sometimes it was noisy, but then it got very useful. And then with the advent of the smartphone, it was very useful to have everything in your pocket. You can, especially for example, for me that I get lost all of the time, I rely heavily on my GPS to find myself back. So, but the problem with technology for, to support aging is that there is a very low acceptance. There is a high level of development and assessment and research. So a very big part of the technology is tested and it, it's working and if widely adopted could help in supporting the aging, but there is no immediate acceptance. Why? If we think about it and if we see how is it going, it's because there are several stakeholders involved in this process. So there are the scientists, the engineers, technologists, designers that are involved in the actual development, but most of them are not aged yet. So they don't really know what are the actual needs of uh, those kind of users. Even if they reach out to the user, the biggest problem is that not only the users are responsible for the adoption of the technology, but also healthcare professionals, families, uh, economies, the authorities. Uh, so there is so much involved. And uh, the biggest problem is that if we cannot address as technologists all of the stakeholders, we will not have wide adoptions of the technology. So my objective in my research is actually to develop user-centered but also community-centered te technical solution for the aging population to have a wide adoption rate. And how to do that? For example, for user-centered technology, the two main points is that it should, it should be unobtrusive as much as possible, not modify people habits, people lives. To be there and not be there. And also should provide some seamless transition between prevention, monitoring, support, when needed. So not uh, something that is used at some point, then there is periodic review, and then after periodic review, we switch something different. There has to be, again, changed, and then when finally it is not sufficient anymore, we go to support, and also because this is a problem in terms of, uh, of course, organizational problems, but also in terms of emotional things. Like if the moment you are assessed that monitoring is not enough anymore, you need to have support. You're not self, you're not independent anymore. So the point is, we need something that you don't really see it and it doesn't really affect your life, but it's there and when needed, you can use it. So we develop uh, a few things, a few uh, uh, parts and one, part, the most important part for us was uh, develop a system for mobility assessment. Because the biggest problem is the mobility of a person declining with age, 
but it doesn't decline linearly. It depends on the life of the person, of course, and it's also correlated with cognitive abilities. The biggest problem with that is that one, a per, once a person loses their mobility, most of the time their cognitive abilities also decrease, decrease very fast. So it is very important, it's primary, the primary importance to maintain the person as mobile as possible, as independent as possible. And so the idea is to have something that can assess mobility all of the time, unobtrusive, and have uh, some alarm that will start uh, the process of training whenever it's needed. And a frequent and reliable sorry, measurement for mobility is needed. I was so what are the practical difficulties of that? Uh, we, we already have those kind of um, assessments. The problem is this, these assessments are periodical, done after uh, some age. In Japan, I think it's over 60 years of age or 65. And uh, people do a questionnaire, then they might undergo uh, some standard mobility tests to assess their, their mobility once a year. But uh, either they do very simple tests, they cannot really uh, reflect on their ability, or if uh, they, they undergo lab tests or very uh, complex tests, is mostly because they have already some problem or also, uh, and also those tests are not very easily accessible. They're, they're expensive, uh, they take time. This is also a problem. And another problem with, with mobility assessment is that even if this is correlated to cognitive assessment, the assessment at the moment is done completely separated. So there is a, uh, an assessment process for mobility and assessment pro process for cognitive abilities. And so it is difficult to actually see what, which is which, whether you are like you have problems during daily life due to your cognitive declines or to your mobility decline, because standard tests for mobility are very simple tests. Usually you do, uh, you do a few uh, movements, for example, you stand up and you walk for five meters and they record the time in which you do without doing anything else. While during daily life, you very rarely just do one task. You are walking and checking on your phone when is the next bus. You are uh, singing and watching the TV and doing the dishes. And, and this all, always uh, affects your movement. So what we decided to do is to start a project, which is called For You. And this project gained, uh, got Kakenki funding, like Japanese uh, government funding, for uh, three years. For you means unlimited, ubiquitous, universal, user-friendly, wearable monitor system for the activity and vital parameters of all the edges. The idea is that uh, we use sensors, mostly accelerometer, magnetometer, and gyroscopes. We will see a little bit later, but they measure the movement of the person. And those sensors are very small. They're wearable. They can be put anywhere, but they, the idea is that not to put a lot of sensors on the people all the time, but to put sensors in things that people use all every day. So not to have to put the sensor plus every day, but to have, for example, the sensor already, use the sensor on your mobile phone, uh, put a sensor into the cane, have a smart um, insole that you can put in your shoes and just forget about them. And so those things will monitor your vital parameters all of the time, but you don't really see them. Uh, there are some concerns about privacy, but the biggest point is that there is no actual uh, personal data associated with this because the system is completely closed. And so only, for example, your doctor or your family could see the data, and still the data are just numbers. So even if they access to them, it's very difficult to find out what those numbers uh, mean unless you know all the algorithm. So uh, there is already, uh, there are already many studies on automatic mobility measurements. Uh, usually they're done in the lab. They're very complex. 
uh, they need a long setup time and the there is a limited working space. You only can do them in the lab. They are very precise though. The advantage of using wearable sensors is that they're cheap, they're really cheap. They need a very short setup time. Most of the time you just need to switch them on because they are already calibrated. And then you can use them anywhere because as long as, long as you have some recording uh, device with you, for example, on your phone, they will send the data directly to your phone. This is what the Fitbit does, for example. On um, um, the, the problem is that with those sensors, you need to develop very strong algorithm to actually ha estimate what the person is doing. Because, for example, the Fitbit, going back, <laughs> it just counts your steps. And even counting your step is not an easy activity when you have a sensor on your wrist. So you need precise algorithm for that. And if you need those sensors to uh, estimate complex parameters of your gait, do a complex analysis of your gait, because it should be almost medical grade to see uh, the decline in time, you need to um, extract many parameters from the sense. So what we did, I'm, I'm skipping over the technical parts a little bit. We measured with, uh, with algorithms the actual events of the, um, the while walking, for example, when you touch the, the ground, when you leave the ground. And from there, we measured the periods of the, the walking. And we tested our algorithm in the lab, of course, with videos in, very, in many different um, situations. For example, we test in a single task, the person is just moving, just walking, or doing do dual tasks, the person is walking and counting backwards. And the multitask activity, the person is walking, counting backwards, and holding a cup. And the idea is those type of tests are tests are done uh, from uh, actual healthcare uh, professional to test your abili abilities, both physical, only physical, cognitive, and cognitive and physical correlated. So those are standard tests, and we wanted to know how our algorithm was doing compared to the professionals. And we tested this on more than 100 older adults. And the results were quite good. And then we also tested our algorithm with people who had some specific uh, problem. For example, Parkinson's disease or some injury or even different type of walking, walking on snow. And so we perfected this algorithm in a way that the errors are minimal, and so they can actually uh, extract your walking parameters even in abnormal conditions. Another thing that is interesting for us is that once we have all of our parameters, what we, how can we uh, see whether the person is decreasing or not? Uh, abilities are decreasing or not we need to know the relation between the muscle activation, the muscle strength, and the mobility. Uh, one important uh, muscle, for example, for uh, mobility, for uh, maintain independence in daily life, is the knee extensor. So the knee extensor must be trained routinely to maintain, uh, to keep uh, the same strength, otherwise, it will deteriorate with age. And when the, 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 the knee extensor is deteriorated, your balance really suffer and you risk to fall. What is the problem here? How do I train the knee extensor? You need to do specific exercises. So you need to either climb stairs for uh, some stairs for some period, uh, or you need to do a specific exercise for the knee sensor. And this affects my daily life because I need to remember to do those exercises. Might be boring. It might be also um, dangerous because maybe I already have some problems. I don't want to go up and down the stairs. For, so what 
for example, elderly, or maybe there are cultural aspects. What elderly people in Japan like to do is to walk a lot. So they very rarely go to the gym, but they walk a lot. They're very active. But the problem with this is that their idea of training is that they are training. They are actually training a lot. But the real fact is that the muscle, the knee extensor, is not trained enough. And so by the time, the, the aging, the, uh, the knee extensor only suffers and the rest of the, the muscles are okay and they still can uh, start falling and have other problems. So we need to find the solution to have a non, um, how to say, obstructive uh, way of keep this muscle training. What we came out with is like, first of all, we need to know how to uh, see how much of the muscle I'm using, how active is the muscle. There are many ways to, uh, to study, to measure muscular activity. Most of them are very difficult ways, things that, uh, technology that you have to use in a specific place, or EMG, like uh, the, the electromyogram, which is the ones that your doctor puts on, on you, on your skin, with the alcohol, and measure, for example, uh, the heartbeat. Or So they are very um, not very easy to use in daily life. So what we tried to do was, why don't we try to estimate uh, the way that the muscle is activated by using very simple sensors? So we try to use, again, those IMUs, the um, accelerometer and gyroscope of the previous uh, experiment of the previous research. And the idea is that we compared the IMU's data with the actual EMG data on the muscle. We made a model of walking on the stairs and also walking uh, on the ground. We extracted all the parameters that we were talking about earlier and I couldn't avoid to put a little bit more technical things. And so then we did experiments to see whether we could estimate with simple sensors, sensors that you can find in your phone. So you can actually put your phone in your pocket and estimate how much your muscle is activated. And the idea is that you can. If you have an algorithm which is good enough, you can see depending on your, the type of movement you're doing, whether your, your uh, muscle is activated enough, over 40% of the maximum voluntary contraction of the muscle, to train. And if the muscle is not activated too much, if you're not making too much effort instead, and uh, using just very simple uh, sensors, you can know whether your uh, training uh, activity is enough for your age. And also what we are still trying to develop is a support system, uh, actually trainer and support. This is the very first prototype. It's, it's quite big. It's not something that an elderly person would put on. But the idea is to build a very small prototype that people can wear under the trousers, for example. And this is a passive um, version so that it doesn't require any batteries. You can put it on and when you're walking, it will apply a little bit, just a little um, resistance so that you will automatically increase the strength of your knee extensor. The idea is to make a smart device when we can solve also the problems with uh, the battery and the long-term use so that using the data from your IMU, the device will automatically either offer resistance so that you can just train your muscle while walking or maybe stop uh, the resistance or offer even support the other way around when you're using your muscle too much. For example, when you're climbing upstairs or you're going up to a steep slope. Then another problem that we wanted to solve is how we can provide technology that is accepted not only by the user, but also by the community. The idea is to provide support for 
all the different needs of all the stakeholders on there. For example, in the case of continuous care, we have healthcare professionals, the nurses, the doctors, we have the families, and we have the actual elderly under care. So we have a situation similar to this. So we want to use some robots in the elderly care facility, but we need to be appealing to the user, but also be safe to use, easy to use for the, um, for the families uh, and for the um, healthcare professional. So we want to solve this gap that is between develop, development and adoption. And what I, yeah. what I uh, needed to do, what we started to do is to start a social participatory design on elderly care technology. So what we did was not only to develop technologies as uh, in the past was done, very useful technology, but very difficult to use for everyone else, for the users. And also there was a lot of distrust of using this technology. So we started to talk with the healthcare professional, we went to the elderly care facility, we brought the robot in, uh, we asked them what they would expect from the robot, uh, we saw what the facility was, because the biggest problem for us is that we are engineers, but we don't really know the environment all of the time. And there are also different technical aspects every time, but there are also cultural aspects. This, for example, was done in is done in collaboration with the University of Siegen, so um, German, elderly are different from Japanese elderly, so there are cultural aspects that are different, there are social aspects that are different, so the robot if has to interact socially, has to learn different social manners. And of course there are economic aspects, so uh, the point is to use a robot has to be economically uh, viable, otherwise it makes not much sense to use a robot if, for example, uh, the staff or two staff or three staff had to operate the robot all at the same time. So we did, we started this project last year and we did a demographic analysis for the technology acceptance, what were the main problems. We went on the in-field work to talk and we also did the social qualitative studies on active aging, what is supposed to be done and what are the um, the discussion made now also for policies for support, for financial support. And then we did, of course, preliminary study for technical requirements, what a robot should be able to do. And this is my last slide, and this is just a very short video from um, the intervention we did in the actual The robot is not teleoperated, the robot has a programming and it's going all by itself. And this is part of the actual physical training program, so the robot would do some movements or would show some movements on the tablet, and the elderly users should follow. And as you can see, even though we made question, we have questionnaires for the nurses and even for the users and a few users were very negative about the robot, they thought the robot was boring, most of the time they all follow the robot from the beginning to the end. So it has, of course it has to be perfected, but there is, it shows that there is a lot of uh, possibilities in this sense. So, this is the end of my presentation. I hope I explained a little bit. Thank you very much for your attention. Yes, and I directly invite the second speaker to continue to um, keep the time. <laughs> yes, uh, good evening. My name is Nobu Ishiguro from Osaka University. Uh, I'm happy to be able to present my research today. Um, today I am going to talk about um, technology in Japanese elderly care uh, on the perspective of governance and cultural values. 
So firstly, I would like to say a little bit about my background. I'm a social policy researcher, and I do a comparative study in elderly care in Japan and Denmark. And my research topics has been uh, care work, home care, housing for elderly, and technology in care. In the last maybe seven, eight years, I have been um, engaged in, on this topic. And uh, why Denmark? Um, because I have been um, studying Danish studies. Um, I have uh, studied one year in Denmark at the Roskilde University, and I have learned the language. Um, I speak Danish. Um, so since then, uh, Denmark has been my research field. And um, some of the projects uh, related to technology, which I have been involved in, is the um, um, telenoid in Denmark. It's a uh, telenoid is um, a teleoperated robot uh, invented by a uh, professor Hiroshi Ishiguro from Osaka University, and I participated on, in the um, intervention in Denmark, and I also um, participated in the project of. Um, a nursing home, a technology-oriented nursing home called Nursing Home for the Future in Denmark. I did the uh, interviews and participatory observation and so on and tried to figure out what's the background of that nursing home um, set up. And I also um, took part in the assistive devices in long-term care uh, project. And uh, lastly, I'm was um, a little bit engaged in a COMU project. It's also a teleoperated robot, tele robot, a communication robot. And we've done the uh, intervention at a nursing home in Kobe. So um, I start by the background. Um, there's um, it has been discussed in many countries um, how to apply technology to elderly care. And um, those in the slides are some of the technologies or assistive devices which have been in use in Japan. Um, and um, technology seems to have potentials in solving problems in the rapidly aging society. And the idea of social investment and reablement is very much related to active aging, which Sarah mentioned. And um, it's been penetrating elderly care, aiming at making older people more independent. And sustainability of care infrastructure uh, is also a crucial issue, and innovative solutions like uh, welfare technology in care seems to be well suited to deal with the problems. And Japan and Denmark has been the um, among the countries um, that are very active in taking initiatives to promote development as well as implementation of welfare technology. Um, however, it is observed um, in Japan um, that care robots are not widely accepted or used. And according to the survey from 2017, um, sensor, Mimomori sensor technology is the, the most wi widely used um, technology in Japanese, or, I mean robot in Japanese elderly care homes, but it's still 2.7% um, of the institutions that uh, implemented in practice. And on the other hand, in Denmark, um, welfare technology is widespread. And um, I think most of the municipalities, municipalities have the responsibility for the elderly care in Denmark. Um, they establish nursing homes and provide home care. And I think all the municipalities have implemented some kind of welfare technology in Denmark. And I, I will show some of the technologies which are widely used in Denmark, um, eating robot and wash shower toilet. And this is the um, ceiling uh, lift. 
And in the center, it's a uh, blue one is a teleoperated robot called Giraffe. It's a teleoperated robot, and elderly people can um, have communication with care staff um, through this technology and the this robot move around in the house so that care staff can see um, inside of the house. And also cleaning robot, it's uh, very common here as well, but it's very much used in uh, Denmark care homes. Um, now, um, I will like to talk about why uh, technology is not widely uh, used in Japan, uh, well, there's, uh, there are many, many factors, um, maybe structural, political, economical, cultural factors behind this. Uh, for example, in Japan, care providers and care facilities should purchase technology themselves, which are quite expensive. And um, information about care technology, welfare technology is not sufficiently provided to residential homes and care workers, and they're not really included in their care workers' education. And moreover, it actually takes sometimes longer time to use technology, and it takes uh, bigger space to, to keep uh, technical devices. So there are a number of reasons, but I in this presentation, I focus on the political, kind of political sphere, and my hypothesis is that governance um, in elderly care policies observed is one of the factors affecting um, the limited uh, implementation of technology. Um, and um, additionally, uh, country-specific cultural values might affect um, how much uh, people are willing to use robots. So um, in my presentation, I start with, the, in the first section, I talk about governance perspective, and in the section, uh, second section, I'll talk about the cultural value perspective. Uh, firstly, governance perspective. Um, this is kind of a little bit theoretical, but uh, governance is, uh, there. there is, um, many definitions uh, of governance, but here I put one example of definition. Uh, this is Kuiman's definition, uh, interactive arrangements with which public as well as private actors participate, aimed at solving societal problems, etc. And participation is, of course, a core element in governance because it produces better results due to the relevant knowledge And concept of participatory governance can be useful. Um, it's uh, institutional arrangements that facilitate the participation of ordinary citizens in the public policy process. And as participation is very important for the social acceptability of innovation and its applicability, this perspective is um, especially relevant in the area of welfare technology. And there are two innovative models of democracy based on qualitative participation. Uh, the first one is associative democracy. It's a system that provides a democratic structure. And the main role is played by a voluntary association with a democratic structure. And the second one is deliberative democracy, and it's um, kind of mechanism, democratic mechanism, without a perfect system. And greater importance is given to opinion forming as the outcome of a debate. And Paksinski argues for a social deliberative democracy that combines the two models, aiming to facilitate high quality participation. So now my um, question, research question is, how is participatory governance in Danish or Japanese elderly care or welfare technology policies organized in perspective of two democratic models? The approaches document policy analysis and interviews of the, some uh, relevant stakeholders. So, 
I talk about three levels, uh, state level, local level, and non-public uh, stakeholder level. I start by uh, talking about the state level, and in Denmark, I, I compare Denmark and Japan, and uh, firstly Denmark, um, they try to promote uh, welfare technology by the set of national strategies, and that's the same uh, in Japan. Um, but um, in Denmark, the national strategies like common strategy for e-government or common strategy for digital welfare and Denmark's strategy and so on. And the unique thing about Denmark is that all three levels uh, of governments are involved, not only state level, but also um, in Denmark, the, uh, local governments are two levels, like regions and municipalities. And these national strategies are set out by not only by government, also regions and municipalities. Three parts are involved. And in Japan, the national strategies like New Growth Strategy, the Japan Revitalization Strategy, and the Future Investment Strategy. And uh, Japanese uh, strategy are based on the, the approach to support manufacturers in developing welfare technology or care robots um, that matches the focus areas and to support the experiments carried out in care facilities so that developers and users collaborate on improving welfare technology. And the second local level, as I mentioned, uh, in Denmark, local level is regions and municipalities. And regions are mainly responsible for hospital sector in Denmark. So municipalities are mostly involved in the uh, responsible for the elderly care. And this is also unique in Denmark, that Denmark has the national association of all the municipalities in the country uh, called KL. It's a local government Denmark association representing all the 98 municipalities. And the state consult with KL on policies related to municipalities. And since care workers are mainly employed by municipalities, I, as I mentioned, um, municipalities own and administrate uh, care homes and home care providers. Uh, care workers are mainly employed by municipalities. So um, KL functions as national employers uh, organization. And if we look at each municipality in Denmark, uh, every municipality in Denmark has a section dealing with welfare technology. For municipalities are responsible finance and provision of elderly care. In Japan, uh, we don't have the association of municipalities like Denmark. And apart from some pioneer municipalities, uh, little involvement of municipalities in promoting welfare technology or care robots for Shichoson um, or municipalities are not responsible for provision of elder care in long-term care insurance. It's mainly private providers in long-term care insurance who provide care. And now I go on to non-public stakeholders. And I will talk about three um, stakeholders, uh, FOA, Danage, and um, Senior uh, Citizens' Council. Um, FOA is the largest labor union for care workers in Denmark. Um, and it has a very strong influence on the process of policy making regarding elderly care. And Danish union rate is, in general, it's very high, 67% um, um, approximately in 2016 compared to 17% in Japan. So union rate is very high in Denmark and it has strong voice in the society. And it has a collaboration with uh, KL. Um, FOA is um, labor union, so it's an employee's organization. And as I mentioned, KL is an employer's uh, organization. So FOA and KL on the national level, they collaborate on uh, many things, like they, they together 
develop some kind of tools to promote the use of welfare technology and and how, how to implement the the approach or manual uh, as to how to promote and how to use or how to implement welfare technology in the care homes and so on. And um, um, today, Mr. Yamaguchi uh, is <laughs> is participating in the seminar, and he, uh, Mr. Yamaguchi is trying to present uh, the KL's um, tool or um, or uh, you have also um, translated uh, evaluation system of welfare technology, um, which was uh, developed by a Danish uh, institute, and and trying to to um, you know um, make it available for Japanese uh, care homes and uh, providers. Um, now, next one is Danage, and um, Danage is the largest organization for elderly people, and it has um, strong influence on policymaking in elderly care, and it's based on membership. There are many members, as you can see, and it um, comments on the use of welfare technology, not only about the use of technology, but also a policy, elderly care policy in general. And it has a very strong power and it's very uh, competent in mediating all kinds of information about elderly and they are very good at uh, being heard by the government or public. The last one is Senior Citizens Council, which is established in each municipality in Denmark. And by law, all municipalities in Denmark shall have a Senior Citizens Council. And it's elected every four years on a democratic basis by the senior citizens over 60 years uh, living in a municipality. And municipalities should consult with councils about elderly care policies, including welfare technology at the local level, as well as national level, uh, because it's uh, in the each municipality has this council, but it also has a national association for senior citizens councils in Denmark. So it's not only local level, but also at a national level. So um, in Japan, in general, close state society partnership in social services and some intermediate associations like social welfare corporations and so on participate both in policy making and welfare service provisions. However, few initiatives are taken by those associations regarding welfare technology policies. And uh, labor unions are not so strong enough to be heard in Japan. And state mainly supports uh, manufacturers in developing care robots. And it's, it's like technology first approach, like in need first approach. Um, so to the discussion, in Denmark, welfare technology policy have gone through deliberation or dialogue between public and non-public stakeholders as well as deliberation within the sector. And a model of a social deliberative democracy reflecting the long history. Uh, they have a long history or tradition of associative democracy in general with, with the um, democratic association structures and practices which the Danish welfare state is based upon. And since participation of users possessing relevant knowledge is crucial and can make inno innovation work, the model might contribute to the effective implementation of welfare technology. In Japan, developmental discourse is observed as a motivation to promote welfare technology focusing on supporting care robot developers and few existing channels to hear users' voice, user meaning elderly people and care workers. And this is, I think this is critical as the development and adoption of new technologies should always be based on the needs and wishes of the users. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, yes. Yes, the next section, I talk about the um, cultural values. Um, first of all, um, I would like to point out that we need to consider the nature of care work because 
um, it's, it's not only in Japan, but maybe universal. But care work is different from manufacturing in factories where industrial robots are used, and efficiency is not always welcomed in care work. And although technology might perform physical tasks, care work also includes emotional and relational aspects of which many robots are incapable. And care is embedded in a set of social relations integral to well-being of the elderly. Um, contrast between cold care by technology and warm care by human hands might create frictions in care work and result in resistance um, to technology among some care workers. And in addition, uh, there might be in Japan some um, cultural values which can affect the limited use of welfare technology. And that is something I would like to investigate um, in the next. So I conducted a case study in Japanese uh, care homes. And the research question is, how do care workers perceive technology in care work? And I use transfer lift as an example of technology in care. And um, I've done a focus group, um, three of uh, three groups. Uh, two groups are uh, care workers using transfer lift in their daily care work, and one group is not using transfer lift in their daily work. And Care work includes heavy transfer tasks, and transfer lift can help reduce injury risks among care workers. Nevertheless, lifts are not um, often used in Japanese care work places. Although it is officially recommended in Japan that care workers should use uh, transfer lifts. Um, examining the attitudes behind this phenomenon might help us ascertain why technology is unpopular in Japanese care work. And transfer lift is not a care robot, so it's, it's, uh, it's not a new technology, um, but it's a good example in this context, as it is a technology which most of the Japanese care workers have either experience of or have knowledge about. Therefore, it's relevant to investigate in focus group interviews how workers perceive and understand transfer lift. I will present the result of the focus group uh, with groups of care workers not using transfer lift. Uh, first of all, a strong belief exists um, in Japan in general that human hands should undertake care. And care by human hand is thought to be warm, um, whereas the um, care by technology is thought to be cold. And the focus group has shown the same tendency, and they say that using a lift is like lifting an object um, using a crane truck, and um, not like treating people. Um, and they think that to be cared for by technology is a symbol of dependence and passivity. And uh, in this way, we can say that Japanese care workers express a kind of uh, paternalistic characteristics as they make decisions about what is best for frail older people um, on their behalf, in good faith, actually. Um, because care workers assume that elderly people prefer being lifted manually by hands um, without asking elderly people. Uh, they, they presume without asking. And this attitude can possibly be attributed partly to Japanese cultural values, especially the notion of um, self and uh, features of the resulting interactions with others. And this is based on the uh, social psychological literature. Um, the Japanese self is um, interdependently and contextually construed, whereas a Western self is independently and individually construed. 
And in this culture, autonomy and self are not well developed, and collectivism is very strong. And um, we, we can say that maybe uh, in Japanese cultures, we um, appreciate if we can communicate without expressing in words. We read context and we read facial expressions and, and, and think what is best for them. So uh, it's a kind of a paternalistic approach to presume what older people wish. And now uh, we'll look at the um, result of um, care workers' uh, focus interview with the care workers using transfer lift. And some of the care workers um, tried for the first time uh, transfer, using transfer lift at the care workplace they work for now. And they say, some of them say, before using transfer lift, they anticipated it feels cold but noticed afterwards when they use it that transfer lift can provide better care in some cases. So uh, when we transfer them manually by hands, uh, their faces were distorted with pain, but when we use a transfer lift, they smile and say, I'm okay. Uh, because sometimes when you use a manual lift by hands, it's very painful for the uh, care recipients. Um, yes. And now I go on to the um, discussion. I'd like to present um, survey results from the Cabinet <coughs> Office survey here. Um, they asked the question, uh, if you are in need of care, would you like a care worker to use a care robot? And then 65% uh, responded, yes. And what is good about care robots? Then 63% um, responded caretakers' burdens are relieved. And followed by 41%, you do not need to kiyotsukau. Kiyotsukau hitsuyoganai. You do not need to kiyotsukau. And kiyotsukau, this is very Japanese um, expression, uh, which is rather difficult to translate into other languages. And it means, uh, literally, it means to use your mind towards someone, uh, meaning to be careful and sensitive to someone so as not to cause them trouble. It implies uh, Japanese people's fear that one will be thought impertinent unless one holds back. And so Japanese people would like to avoid that, to be disliked. So, so uh, the use of welfare technology have potential here because alleviation of burdens by care robots, um, burden by care robots, that's maybe appreciated both by care workers and also elderly. So it has a potential possibility to have a win-win um, situation. So um, now I um, go move on to concluding remarks. And the, in the first section, I talk about the general platform for dialogue between relevant stakeholders is lacking in Japan. And we, there's a need to create the necessary conditions for discussions on all levels. And also the second point is that in some of the Japanese care homes, they say that no, we don't want to introduce robot because it's cold. But I think robot care or human care dichotomy makes little sense because it's not only robot, it's not only human, but it's also, it's actually human technology, human relationship. So technology can be incorporated into uh, very human care. So it's not only, it's not about use of technology, but it's about how to use technology uh, to provide better care. So technology has a potential to contribute to attentive care, and this is well illustrated by the transfer lift example. Uh, when a care worker conducts a manual lift by hands, um, then they hold the care recipients like this, and they, they see only the care recipient over the shoulder, and they can't see, the care workers cannot see the face of the care recipient from the front. And it's not attentive. 
but if you use transfer lift, then they can see a uh, care recipient face from the front and see if it's painful or not. So it's attentive care. So technology has the potential to contribute to more better care. And uh, lastly, um, I would argue that incorporating perspective or cultural values is very important because I uh, talk about Denmark, but Denmark has a different cultural values and Japan has special maybe cultural values. So, so we, we can't just imitate what Denmark is doing, but we have to incorporate perspectives in how to approach our challenges in the um, use of implementing uh, welfare technology. Thank you.